Hello everyone, welcome to the left page. Yes, we're here again. We are late one week and it's totally our fault. Yeah, these things happen. Bruno was sick last week, then I was sick at the end of this uh, last week. So yeah, that was just... These things happen. We're we're deeply sorry. But this time it works. I'm still recovering, so sorry if weird noises on account of that. (laughs) But it should be fine. Yeah. So we have a very interesting discussion today. And first, often ex-parter on the, the detective novel or the detective narrative, if you will. But first... Let's do uh, a matter of order, if you will, <laughs> and I'm taking a page from the Magnificast book, and we're going to read some ratings and reviews from iTunes, <laughs> so uh, thanks everyone for them. So, first of all, from March 7th, by a very tall man, informative and entertaining, five stars, great podcast from very well-researched people, both fun and educational. So yeah. I'm gonna tell Bruno what we what I mentioned to him before. <laughs> I'm glad you think we're well researched. <laughs> yeah, we're really glad for this. <laughs> Thank you. It means a lot to us. Yeah. Uh, well, we we do our preparations and researches, but it, you know we. Yeah. Yeah. Like we do our best, and I, I don't mean that what we do is simply oh let's just do something out of the blue. No, we yeah. take our time and all that. But still, to be well researched is. Yeah, it's a, it's an honor. Yeah. Senna. Yeah. Next from Pearson Bolt of Coffee with Comrades. So go listen to that as well. Thank you very much for this Pearson. Leftist lit five stars from March 19th. A great podcast investigating the intersections of literature and leftist politics. This show is hosted by passionate intellectuals who've got a lot to offer any bookworm. Put this spot in your ears and get yourself some learning. Yeah, thank you yeah. so much, <laughs> yeah, Pearson. Really, really, really this, this this is an honor. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah. So yeah, leave us some more reviews, and we will read them on air at the beginning of our episodes whenever we remember. Hopefully, well, I'm gonna pay attention to them. Please leave them so we have a, a good start. It's always a good thing to have an introduction. If you yeah, will. exactly. Today we're going to be talking about A Study in Red by Arthur Conan Doyle. It's the first Sherlock Holmes novel. And it's a very interesting discussion that we have for you today on the detective novel in general, Sherlock Holmes, the, the, the novel in, in itself. And Bruno's going to take us through the, like the general idea of the novel and what goes on. Yeah. And then I want to make a brief exposition on the detective novel and a few things here and there, because as I've mentioned on my personal Twitter a couple of times, I think, I'm taking a special course this semester. It's a subject that one of my teachers from my faculty is giving, and it's pretty awesome, about history and the detective novel, Mm -hmm. its origins, its courses, so thanks to that, we have a lot of material. So yeah, this is going to be even more well-researched than normal. So yeah, uh, Bruno, 
take us through the story. Yeah, the story, well, basically a study in... It's a study in red or a study in velvet? Uh, uh, sorry, sorry, a study in scarlet. Oh, I think it's probably yeah, 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 in Scarlet. Yeah, it's in Scarlet. Yeah, it's because sorry, sorry. unusually this time I read in the translation to Portuguese. A yeah. good one, but still you kind of Yeah, because things. the translation is not... It, it should be Scarlacci and it is Vermelho, which means red. But, yeah, th there's no importance in that. So, basically, the book put us through the eyes of Dr. Watson. He's a, a military medic. An ex-medical of officer. Yeah, ex-medical officer. From the British Army in the... the... Indian occupation, yeah. And basically, he comes back after a serious wound on his shoulder. And you have... I was talking earlier with Frank about how... Uh, I think that this is important to talk before analyzing the characters... Because Arthur Conan Doyle was, uh, he studied medicine and he had a professor that was a mix between medicine and a kind of analytical perspective on how to deduct things from certain uh, aspects of a story or a patient in, in the case of the, the, the doctor. But something that's really interesting is like, Arthur kind of dismembers himself in these two characters, which are Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, because Dr. Watson is the... He has a, a genuine scepticism about what, what Holmes wants to teach people. He, he writes to a, a newspaper, he do lots of research, so, but this dismembering in two characters, it's really rich in the uh, narrative perspective. Because you have two characters that are basically subverted in a kind of uh, yin-yang of asceticism, more like spirituality mm -hmm. and pure, pure analysis. So, for example, you have Watson, which is a really ascetic doctor. And he starts, through the novel, he starts to believe in, in the methods of, of Sherlock Holmes. As well as you have Sherlock Holmes, which appears to be an omniscient god. Like, his capabilities are amazing. But this kind of supernatural kind of analysis is totally based on scientificism and pure analysis. So, I, I think that's really interesting to kind of comprehend the kind of floor that Arthur gives us to make us, the people who are reading, feel a lot powerless because mm -hmm. you don't, in my case, I didn't like Dr. Watson from the beginning. Like, I think that he was too static and too... He appeared to me like really a pain in the ass. And in the other, from the other, from another perspective, you have Holmes, which has so much connaissance, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that he assembles a god and, and he's so distant from the person who is reading that he's basically the the hand of the the writer. He's the, the, the mind of the writer because he already knows the whole story. Yeah. In a sense, we're, and that's a common theme, we're the assistant and we see yeah. the story through the eyes of the assistant. Exactly. The, usually, 
foolish, pathetic, and ignorant assistant who at times even doubts the detective. Yeah. That doesn't happen as much with Watson. It happens a lot in uh, Agatha Christie's novel, especially with Hugh Poirot, where usually his assistant Hastings is very questionable of him. He's like, well, he's becoming senile and whatever. So it's very, it's a great distinction. Yeah, but basically the book is reversed. In there are two parts, mm-hmm. but the book is reversed. So we, in the beginning, the first part, we have the reverberations of the crime, and the investigation. We happen to know more about Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson and his life in the in war, and we have the figures of two lesser detectives which are Lestrade and Gregson Gregson, yes and while they uh, so this is the first part they try to find out the murder and the murder appears to be completely puzzling Frank will talk more about this later on the first types of crimes that shocked people and shocked the conservative nations from Europe This this would happen again on the united states with the serial killers and all of that but then the second part we have the motive for the crime Mm -hmm. and uh apparently uh almost a cowboy story yeah (laughs) yeah it's it's interesting there's a really close connection between the hard-boiled detective that originates in the u.s at around the same time when the detective novel in in the UK and in Europe generally, yeah. is consolidating around the 1920s. It's after this, but it's during the time of Agatha Christie, and it's a very different type of novel and type of detective story at the same uh, historical time, but in different places. And there's a close connection to the hard-boiled detective related to the Western, to the cowboy. Yeah. So maybe we'll get to it on a later episode, but interesting, it's very much the case, because like, yeah. the the story has a close relation with the US in that sense. It's mm-hmm. not it's not Utah, a story yeah. of Europe. It's a yeah. story of the Americas. Yeah. And basically you hop on Jefferson Hope back and you see the crime through his eyes and well, I I will stop here because I don't want to spoil anything. <laughs> but we will talk about the the ideological things behind those two parts. Yeah. So, yeah, Frank, go on. Okay, so I'm going to take us back a bit because I want to kind of go through the detective novel in a more original sense. And especially what we're dealing with when we're t- thinking of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And by inclusion, Hugh Poirot, Miss Maple, and others that follow this pattern of the analytic detective, if you will. But first, it's related a lot to the shape of the story in A Study in Scarlet. Yeah. Because, as you said, it's two different narratives that at the end kind of intersect. There's a story of the crime, and there's a story of the investigation. And that is, according to the Argentinian writer and literary critic Ricardo Piglia, his definition on the short story is a lot like that. It's two different stories that have a point of intersection. Yeah. And it's something that we read for the course as well. 
and it's very much this. This is very symbolic of it. You have one story, and then you have a second story. Yeah. And they intersect at the end. Yeah. They intersect at the end of the first part, but it's not obvious what is the story. Yeah, of the exactly. Crime. Yeah. And I think, uh, sorry to interrupt again, no problem. Edgar Allan Poe is a sole master of this because mm -hmm. you can see in probably all his works that he, as Sherlock says in the in the novel, everyone has the ability to have facts and to deduct what is happening after these facts. But the interesting thing when you are a detective is to know the end and to deduct the facts. And this kind of operation of bringing a reverse chronology of the facts is the same thing as telling a second story. Because, mm -hmm. as Frank said, this intersection is... It, it, it makes... When you read the second story, it, it becomes so obvious. And that that is the the brilliance of Poe and Conan Doyle and all the others, that after you have the story all in your mind, you can reverse the chronology and you make a crime that appears absurd. But when you... Like, if you read just the second part of the of the novel, it would be just a, a cowboy story of yeah. revenge. Yeah. And you think, oh, yeah, that's there's nothing special. There's... there's two crimes he, he he does in a kind of epic and theatrical way of killing absolutely but there's there's nothing puzzling about it mm -hmm. but when you but that is the the reverse logics of it because mm -hmm. when you see from the the perspective of someone that wasn't that doesn't know fundamentally doesn't know the the meaning and the motivation behind the the crimes everything becomes blurred and really confused so so that's why i think it's genius from from ricardo to say that this theory about intersection of two stories mm -hmm. yeah but anyway uh, sorry about being sidetracked so the the detective novel became pretty much prominent and became like a thing I'm going to say a thing because I'm going to get to that in a sec, uh, what that thing might mean. It became a thing especially after, because in the UK you had certain crimes and you had this, what would become the Scotland Yard. And they solved crimes, they were institutional detectives, they were quite popular and all that. Until you had a particular crime, the crime of Road Hill, in June 30. 1860, a while ago, yeah. uh, which was basically a murder in a closed house. Like yeah. the perfect murder, perfect the crime. perfect mystery, in yeah. a sense. Yeah. And there was a great loss of prestige. Yeah. Because while they accused someone which later was actually involved in it, they never fully solved the case, and the case remained unsolved till today, and probably, and yeah. likely will remain so. Yeah. What that meant was a loss in the institutional prestige of the detective or the cop, even. Yeah. So when you go to Poe, for example, the detective, Auguste Dupin, he is an amateur. Yeah. He's not some... He does this as a hobby, these investigations. And there's a general mocking for the institutional cop, the institutional detective, related closely to this matter of a negative view of prestige. But why uh, the thing? Why I mentioned that the detective novel was a thing is because there's a, an interesting discussion about what it actually did, 
But what it actually is, is it simply a, a subgenre? Is it like a method? The researcher Thomas Narcejac, he has a pretty close and interesting definition about the detective novel being a machine of reading. Because it creates a certain type of reader and it encourages this reading. This reading that involves an investigation, yeah. that involves this clinical and critical look over the text to be like, and it's the idea of the duel. Yeah. It's a duel between not the narrator or the criminal and the reader, but between the reader and the author. Yeah. I think it's a very good example on a text by, let me just check. Uh, pa, 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 pa. Yeah, by J.K. Chesterton when he's writing about how to write a detective novel yeah, uh, or a detective story, that it's perfectly obvious for there to be um, an agronomer in a tree in front of this, of this yard. But when you're reading a detective novel, you're like, okay, why did the author pick a, an agronomer to be in top of this specific tree at this yeah. specific time? Yeah. Well, it may be possibly uh, quite evident and quite rational to think, oh, it's just perfectly fine that there are agronomers in this world and there are agronomers that would climb trees. <laughs> Why is he here now? Why did yeah. the author do this? Yeah, I think as you said, like the machine reading, I think that the genre of, of police novels, it's basically the... We're seeing the concept of close reading being born. Yeah. Because basically, and this is really, this has his ups and downs, but it, it really gives a, a more analytical uh, perspective of, of reading. Because as you have this kind of anxiety to, to try to speculate what will happen, mm -hmm. you start to... Oh, but why there was a ring in the crime scene? Oh, why mm -hmm. there was such things? And, and th this is really important because this gave a new dimension for interpretation and why why do certain characters are named the way they are named for example Je Jefferson Hope mm -hmm. the, his story is basically about hoping that he won't he will not die before he can consume his vengeance and such things are probably only possible after this type of genre uh, because, um, for example, in the Iliad by Homer, the majority of descriptions and things that are accessory and aesthetical to the course of the of the narrative are well explained. There are whole chants for I don't know uh, Achilles' shield, yes, and like there's nothing subliminal in in mm. this sense because. There's a, uh, there are always the gods and, and uh, the heroes and uh, the people that suffer. But here we have a new dimension of everything can mean something. Yeah. And I think that's the geniosity of the, this kind of genre. Yeah, a purpose to the narrative. Because you could perfectly well have things that are there for their reason. But that don't necessarily mean something to the general story or the investigation. Yeah. And when you begin this type of reading, you have this sort of expectation. Yeah. This desire to beat the detective to the crime, <laughs> which is kind of silly 
like we all do it. It's no, it's by no means an accusation. Yeah. But like you're trying to be the author. The author knows the stories. Yeah. It's a bit difficult. Yeah. And usually the not very good, at least serious detective novels, you can do that. Yeah. Uh, usually the better ones are a lot more difficult. Yeah. And at times impossible. Yeah. <laughs> but so that's the general origins. And with Poe, you have this. This idea of the the analytic detective, and that's what Sherlock Holmes, Poirot, Miss Maple, that's what they are usually categorized as. And what that means is, is this focus on reason. It's all reason. Like, this is the high value. It, it's not about, these are not misdirections, these are not things, this is the pure exercise of reason. Paul called his stories, he didn't call them detective novels, he called them rational exercises, I believe. <laughs> Or something close to that. Yeah. No, stories of reasoning. Yeah. Stories of reason. Mystery and reasoning. And what characterizes the analytic detective a lot is he's usually this reflexive, analytic character. He's this machine of thinking. Yeah. And what what you mean, what you said before about him being a god is related to his de- dehumanization. Yeah. Because he's superhuman, so yeah. he's not human. Yeah. And that's why exactly. he feels so distant. And in that sense, his peculiarity, his eccentricity, he is distant from general society. Yeah. He is the supreme erudite figure. He knows everything. Yeah. He has wrote two treatises on ears. Yeah. Uh, Read the cardboard box. (laughs) It's it's very interesting and it's it's where that becomes relevant. Yeah. And in that sense, the assistant, he is extremely human in the absolute. Yeah. He's doubtful, he's naive, he's intellectually limited. Yeah. And that's Watson, that is Hastings, that is a bunch of others. And that is the reader as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he is usually the narrator. Yeah. And w- you see the story through his eyes. Yeah, because it would be ridiculous if you saw the, the story from, from Sherlock Holmes. Eyes. Yeah, it would be kind of pointless. Yeah, it, you it, wouldn't it, it would get have it. three pages. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't get it. That's yeah. kind of the thing. Yeah. And I think it's very interesting because a lot of these stories, the actual narrative or the writing of these stories is a fact of the stories. Because like in the world of Sherlock Holmes, Watson writes and publishes the stories of these cases. Yeah. So they have this meaning to the actual story and the whole dimension. And it's incredibly interesting to think about the analytic detective in that sense as this figure, and that is a common criticism of him, as this restore of bourgeois order. Because you have the crime, you have this disruption of order, this disruption of society. And that's a lot of what meant the case of Road Hill. Because it was an unsolvable murder, yeah. and it it shocked London. How, how could that have happened yeah. in our society with our customs, with our values? How can something like this happen? Yeah. And it happened. Yeah. Uh, and in y- that sense, the detective comes in. I'm sorry, I, I just want to yeah. wrap this point. The no detective problem. comes in and he puts this mess of elements, these red herrings and these elements out of yeah. place. He orders them, puts them right in their places and everything goes back as it used to be or yeah. everything carries on. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the, as you said, the bourgeois uh, kind of perspective, it is really shocking. And we as as left-aligned people and who know the tradition of Arthur Conan Doyle and already mm-hmm. know, uh, we are completely 
different readers of Sherlock Holmes because mm -hmm. we are, are already affected by his fame uh, as a character and as being people who have who don't agree with the the bourgeois customs customs ah uh, customs uh, the bourgeois customs of of this this time in England and but the thing that it's really appealing to me and really shows a lot of for example Brazil <laughs> is that people really believed that the police and the, the people who had the power were invincible mm -hmm. so when you have crimes like american crimes like serial killers and a perfect crime like frank already said you have it's like a mockery for the conservative people because basically a solo a lonely criminal has basically disrespected and subverted the whole the whole ideal and and costume of the con conservative society mm -hmm. alone yeah so so <laughs> it really shocks people because that kind of comportment of uh, behavior. behavior sorry okay. <laughs> uh, this kind of behavior is what gives some arguments to the far right people like uh, bolsonaro for example that says that we need to arm all people in brazil and we need even more violent police so and we have a military police so it's even worse mm -hmm. so you have the figure of the the revolutionary and he didn't even want to be a revolutionary that's the mm -hmm. the most interesting part about it because when you have certain motivations you can i, I don't mean to obviously i, I don't care about this thing on conservatives <laughs> but it's really easy to to break the ideals of of the the conservative people because in this case i bet my my left arm that if a conservative read the story of jefferson hope and we subtracted the religious part the conservative would like Jefferson Hope. Mm -hmm. So so this is really astonishing to me because it's it's a novel, a really, really not, but it's an old novel in, in this kind of sense. And it's really, it speaks about exactly what, uh, for example, we're having here in Brazil. Yeah, and I think in that sense, while the detective, especially the analytic detective, has this part in restoring order, it's it really shows a lot how the detective story has changed because for the large majority of these novels for pretty much the entirety of the most or most part of the 20th century regardless of even parodies or the analytic detective the hard-boiled which the american one and other variations and flexibilizations of the original matrices the institutional police the institutional detectives are pretty much never seen or rarely seen as positive. Yeah. They're usually bumbling, incompetent, fools. Mm -hmm. So when you think about the large majority of, or the large number of police shows on TV where you follow the institutional police yeah. or the special detectives, yeah. like the FBI, the yeah. uh, Naval, yeah, whatever, force, whatever. Yeah. I don't remember the name, NCIS, I mean. Yeah. And when you follow these sorts of groups, you're following institutional police. At the same time, it's 
not really it's this special squadron for a b or c yeah it's like a sort of compromise yeah and at the same time however it reinforces the idea that no the institutional works but that has flaws because they get in, com- in trouble with other departments and whatnot. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, as you can see, I enjoy them a lot. It's my guilty pleasure. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I hate them as figures most of the time, but I, I, I we like detective stories. <laughs> it's that simple. Yeah. Whether we read them, whether we watch them, yeah. Most of us will like us. Like, there's a reason why Agatha Christie is the most. Uh, what's uh, how to phrase it properly? The most sold author yeah. in the world, yeah, ever, yeah. You know the numbers. I think I like, don't know. Oh, I have the numbers. Yeah, because we had one class about her. Uh, I'm gonna leave all this in. By okay, the way. okay. And but she saw. I think the latest data from around what's this? Sev, uh, 2014, probably 2014, 2015. So yeah, more now. 7.5 billion <laughs> copies sold. <laughs> I didn't know that, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. She's also incredibly well... She wrote a lot. Like 66 novels, 14 collections of short stories, and 19 plays. So, you know, that's that's also a stupid amount. But 7.5 billion? That shows way too much. Like, people will like short stories. Yeah. Or... What? No, people like detective stories. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, w- w- we had the book fair l- last November. Yeah. So many different editions of Agatha yeah, Christie and, and or Sherlock so, Holmes. And so many different uh, publishers as well. Yes, exactly. It's ridiculous. And, yeah, it's it's mind-boggling. It's a phenomenon. It's yeah. been a global phenomenon. It was a European, then American, then global phenomenon. Yeah. And it has been for the later century. So it's definitely something to engage and not from like, oh, this is entertainment reading. Yeah, yeah. so what? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> doesn't mean exactly. it doesn't say something or has yeah, something in it. Exactly. In that sense, that's why it's, it was relevant for the course that I'm taking. Uh, and about time I say his name because, you know, credit where credit is due. Professor Julio Pimentel. He's our teacher. He's amazing. I love him. <laughs> <laughs> and we read this text from the historian Carlo Ginzburg, the Italian historian. And he has this particular text on myths, emblems, and signs or clues, morphology and history. And he draws out like the roots of what he calls the paradigm of of clues or of investigation, if you will. Where in a lot of fields, and especially medicine, as you mentioned, regarding Conan Doyle and other fields as well, history especially, although not exclusive to these two, a lot more, do this sort of study on the with investigation, with clues. And in that sense, there's a real logic of the investigation. The fields of history, the fields of medicine. Like, when you build a historical narrative, when you're doing these studies or trying to understand and make an interpretation, you have clues of the past, of a certain time, of a certain place. Yeah. And on medicine, for example, you have no access to the internal elements. You don't know what the patient is feeling, for yeah. example. 
and you can't really see what is happening inside. Yeah. You can have glimpses. Yeah. You can have x-rays. You can have samples. Yeah. But you can't see the full picture. Yeah. These are clues to yeah. the full picture. It yeah. is another type of investigation. Yeah, deduction. In that sense, and this is a bit of a stretch, but it's a, it's a fun idea. In what sense isn't house a detective's yeah. story? Yeah, exactly. Various investigations, but instead of crimes, they are diseases. Yeah. And House is the perfect analytical detective. Yeah. <laughs> they don't care that much. And that's one of the problems about the analytic detective. There's a great distancing from the crime. Yeah. Or the disease. He doesn't care, and House especially, he doesn't care about the patient. He cares about finding out what the disease is. Yeah. It's about the investigation. Yeah. It's not really about the victims or the people hurt. It's about the mystery, the enigma, the conundrum. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's something to think about because especially when you go through to the end of the story and you read Jefferson Hope's accounting of what happened. Yeah. You really do sympathize with him, as I think you should. Yeah. He was, was quite right in what he was doing. Like, don't commit violent crimes, but, you know, yeah. we get it. In a fictional world, it's okay, yeah. Yeah, we, we get it, we get it. Yeah, that's uh, the beauty of it. But at the same time, you're, you're still forgetting that those were two somewhat brutal, premeditated murders. Yeah. You go way too far from what from the violence that happened in the beginning when you get to the end. And especially on various short stories, the brutal acts of violence take it for a perfect example. Poe's first detective novel of three, which were The Murders of Hu Morg, The Mystery of Marie Roger, mm -hmm. and The Purloined Letter. Mm -hmm. Purloined, yeah. Those are the three major ones. The first one, it's an incredible... I'm not going to tell you what it is, yeah. but it is an incredibly brutal murder. Yeah. Unlike... Pretty much any you'll see on an analytic detective detective's novel. Yeah. But in the, the distancing of it, ultimately when you get to the analysis, the reasoning behind it, the investigation, it, it, it is quite distant. And that, that at times needs to make us think, especially with media and all that, how close, or, well, even when we look at these stories, when we read these sort of things, and in that sense, that's why the hard-boiled makes a different turn when you're really close yeah. to the violence, yeah. to the yeah. murder, to this corrupt world. Yeah. What does that mean? And how do we relate on a personal, on a social, on a political level to yeah. that? And uh, the analytic detective doesn't handle that. Of course, we can't really blame it for it. It's, it's how it works yeah. at the end of the day. But it really pushes us to think about these types of relations, I think. And that's quite interesting. And it's not exclusive to this story, but I think this story really does that a lot. Because, like, the murder is something very distant. And when you... Of course, there is the violence. In that sense, you can rethink the violence that happens during Jefferson Hope's story. Yeah. But the actual crime, which is supposedly or generally the focus of the story and what you're trying to investigate and find out and what Holmes was doing... Yeah. That becomes very distant. And it also leads us to consider... What is this story about? Because this is not a traditional detective novel either. Like, of course, you have these matrices, these bases. Yeah. But they're never really followed in exact. Like, you have Chesterton and Borges, the Argentinian amazing writer and all that. They wrote, like, these sort of rules to the analytic detective novel. Yeah. And they include, on a very summary, a prudent limit of six characters, a declaration of all matters of the problem, like, 
you have all clues on the table for yeah. the for the reader. That isn't always <coughs> the case. Limits to the artificiality. That's a, an interesting discussion that we don't need to get through now about how these are. As, at the same time that they create a reality, they are far from reality. They're fantasy. Like if you check critical works on Sherlock Holmes, because they are the people who are foolish, if you will, to go and like, oh no, this story about horse racing, this is bananas. <laughs> he couldn't possibly know that. He's wrong in saying all this. <laughs> yeah. In that sense, Holmes knows nothing about horses. This is pathetic. Yeah, uh, it's like it's like the, the discussion of if it is reasonable to put explosion sounds on Star Wars space battles, like... We don't care, man. We don't. We don't need a space scenes without sound. We we want the explosions, and we don't care about if Holmes knows about or doesn't know about horses. Exactly. <laughs> like it doesn't matter if in reality is wrong. He's writing the story, yeah. and that's what matters. Uh, that, like, that's the beauty of fiction. <laughs> yeah, it's a fantasy. It's yeah. a fable in the yeah. same genre as Chesterton puts it, of the fable. But it, it's that sort of story that is. It's a fable. It's 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 yeah. inventive. It's fiction, and yeah. in that sense, this realism, if you will, is not closely related. There is the matter of primordial fact of the how over the whom. This is the matter of the reasoning, the investigation. That's what matters a lot. The power of death, and that, or the not the power, the how to handle that. That you shouldn't, and that's Borges' example. Uh, you shouldn't do it. Portray violence like Homer. Talking about the heads rolling from yeah. the corpses and all that, uh, yeah. but like these sort of hygienic, distant positions. Yeah, yeah. And and even sorry, uh, oh, no even Jefferson Hope, uh, when John Ferrier is killed, he doesn't see the crime. He d j only sees the grave. Yeah. So even the motive for for the vengeance, which is John Ferrier's death, and after. The, the wedding between Lucy and Drever, he doesn't see both of those things. He doesn't see the, the, the wedding, and he doesn't see the, the killing of his, his would-be father-in-law. So you have a really vindictive character who didn't saw the, the wedding and didn't saw the killing of his would-be father-in-law. So... Yeah, as you said, even the most vindictive and violent character in in the story is really distanced, and really in a as you said, a polished and and distant relation from the primes. But he still has this vindictive, violent reaction that it isn't. Uh, I, I will elaborate a, a little bit more about this because I think. For example, today we, in Brazil, for example, we even say that it's a, a bit of a, a, a saying nowadays that the common Brazilian citizen wakes up, drinks coffee, smokes a cigarette, turns on his TV, sees a tragedy, and go to work. Yeah. And this is really the... Numbness. Know, the, yeah, but the numbization, like the... Oh, yeah. I don't know, numb, numbinization, I don't know, the... Yeah, that notion. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, sorry, sorry, but uh, uh, in a sense, the the kind of hammering the same tragedies on on the, the faces of everyone 
at, at first sight, people start to get numb about violence and crimes and what they say about crimes and, oh, he deserved that crime or, oh, he, oh, ah, we should kill someone like that. But at the same time, this, this kind of behavior, it really, it's really the, the cliche of what goes around comes around because yeah. the great majority of people don't even realize how badly psychologically hurt they are because of this infinite exposure to these kinds of crimes mm -hmm. and to these kinds of brutal violence. So it's really interesting because Jefferson Hope has this kind of reactiveness, mm -hmm. but he didn't see the, the violent crimes. Yeah. So he, the, the perfect radical vingative character because mm -hmm. he didn't need the shock and the... Uh, Deus ex machina factor <laughs> to to become a really theatrical and and really Shakespearean vingative character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's really interesting thing to think about because, on a large sense, there is even in this numbness, there is still a distance from the actual violence. Yeah, like to wholly grasp the brutality of certain acts of violence it's incredibly difficult and when you try to do that you don't come out completely whole the other side yeah exactly like the crimes in oh yeah the, the, those the one the ones in new zealand yeah new zealand sorry yeah like you i i happen to see uh, a sort of the excerpt of the the video and you really you really uh, begin to comprehend how any video any internet video youtube or uh, those those leaked sites and the the guy who did the shootings he he live streamed the the, the event and you begin to to see that as you said you you can't you can't have a grasp on how violent these things are through the internet mm -hmm. that's the as Zygmunt Bauman already said that's the the liquidity of the relations and of the the culture love and all the kinds of relations that we have today because when i sincerely when i first saw the video it looked like a, a video game it looked like i don't know battlefield because it, it gives a sensation that it's a show and you you can't even start to comprehend the seriousness of something like that in a video so as we are elaborating it's it's really paradoxical because we are at the same time that we are numbed for this from this violence we don't know nothing about it. We don't yeah. know the magnitude of it, and we and the the great majority of conservative people who say that they would kill I don't know drug dealers, they would kill uh, gay people. Th these people wouldn't have the the psychological psychological ground to do those things. So mm -hmm. it, it's it's really. It's really paradoxical because these people vorasize and they shout about this kinds of thing. Oh, we need to 
deport uh, Mexicans, for example. We need to kill gay people here in Brazil. Bolsonaro, he tries to, he, he loves torturers, for example, from mm -hmm. the, the, the military coup in, in 64. So you see that those peoples are generally just a bunch of mindless, like, I don't know even how to say, like, they they look at, at the world with a perspective that is numb, but they don't have the courage to do the things that they themselves talk about. Mm -hmm. And that is really a mind-boggling thing about... And that's why I think that the, the genre of the police novels and investigative novels, it's really appealing to the public because we as spectators of this brutality and in this state of numbness, we try to grasp something in between those two things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a real, and especially later on, it's a real voyeur aspect of it. Yeah. Like, to, and that, especially in the hard-boiled, because in that you have this corrupt reality and society where everything is wrong. And at the same time as you uh, that you look as a voyeur and you kind of assimilate some of that, if you take that entirely as true, all of it, then what's the then why are you enjoying yourselves reading? Yeah, yeah. Like if if that's the case, then you're a sociopath. Yeah, and then <laughs> not that many people are sociopaths. Yeah. So it's something to really think about on. In relation to the detective novel, and that is something we can go on on the later episode. But how does that relate to our reality? And at times it, it does, at times minimally, at times more. But I think this, especially this discussion on violence and the effects that it has on us, or the effects that it that we don't fully grasp. Yeah. There, I'll make a recommendation as well now. That there has recently been an episode by Revlet Radio, uh, shall we say, we're part of the Federation of yeah. Podcasts. They recently released an episode on grief and death and communal resistance in that sense. I think that's the title. And it's a very good episode talking about, like, at times dealing and handling that violence. Yeah. So I, I wholly recommend that as well. And yeah, this. The detective novel, and especially A Study in Scarlet, it is quite representative of both this genre that would take over the world, really, literally, and it has, yeah. in many different aspects. Because, like, if, if you picture, like, most shows today that try to have any relation to Sherlock Holmes, be it BBC's Sherlock, or I don't remember the other one, Elementary, They, for one example, they have way too much action for it to be Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes is not a man of action. Yeah, like it's he about action. <laughs> yeah, he at most does a little bit of chasing a chariot, but that's it. Yeah. Like, he's he's the guy who does the reasoning, yeah, the, the thinking. Th he doesn't do the chase. Yeah, he's theoretical. Pretty much never. He's, yeah. Exactly. He's distant from the world. He's yeah. this erudite, the... The amateur investigator. He's not a man of action, a man of violence. And that's really interesting to think about. Yeah. This man, totally separate from the world and society at large, who goes in and handles this violence, also from a very distant perspective. Yeah. For, for him, the actual murders and the crimes are quite meaningless from the other than the... Than the deduction and the understanding. Yeah. And in the study in Scarlet, like, 
the criminal doesn't pay for his crimes. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, <laughs> that's the case. Yeah, that's another perfect crime as well because he has the vengeance and then he just dies. Yeah. And of natural causes as exactly. well. Exactly. And Sherlock Holmes doesn't say like, oh, what a shame. No, he's perfectly yeah. satisfied. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's not what it's all about. And yeah. that is something to think about. Like, are these investigations really about the law? And at times they are. About law, order, or about justice. On yeah. A less social, or like the social order sense. But at times, justice. And I think a lot, a couple of shows I see that at times glimpse at this. But sometimes it's not about law, it's not about order, but it's about yeah. this sense of justice on a larger scale. And especially on from a point of view on the left, that becomes even more interesting. That doesn't become the institutional aspect of upholding this system, this order, yeah. but of times of achieving something that that system could never possibly achieve. Yeah, exactly. said <laughs> yeah yeah I, I think that's as you said this begins to correlate on the the aspects of the mormonism uh in the in the studying scarlet because as you said a person like jefferson jefferson hope would never get his justice trying to argument with with the mormons with the and I, I might be stretching a bit here because I don't know I don't know literally nothing about about Mormonism and about the, the kinds of relations that they had. I started to learn about Mormonism because of this book. Mm-hmm. But it's really interesting, like as I said earlier, the figure of the revolutionary the interesting part is that the system and the conservative system which reigns from i don't know since when since the colonialism and to today it really has a strict agenda mm-hmm. so it's really easy to become uh, a revolutionary in, in this sense because for example the subversion of the ideologies and the post truth that uh, it's really used by right wing governments today for example, Israeli occupation in in Palestine. If you remove the 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 names Israel and Palestine and just told the story, I could guarantee to you that ninety five percent of conservatives would say, "Oh, but these people are revolutionaries. Those people are are disruptive. Those people are are doing uh, leftist things and and so on and so forth." And and really. It's just a small community, and I don't have nothing against people, the the people from Israel, but the way that this it was located, and it it was funded by uh, funded with lots of money and lots of armament for, from from the United States. 
you really begin to see that they are in the top and they write the rules. So yeah. when you have some someone like Jefferson Jefferson Hope, you have a revolutionary that doesn't care if he's a revolutionary, and most of all, he's interested in vengeance because he knows that the system would never never try to to reason him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think although I maybe I wouldn't go that far with the reasoning. I think you make interesting points. I wouldn't say perhaps revolutionary, but I'd say definitely subversive. Yeah. I don't think it's... I think it's that, on the one hand, it's quite easy to be a subversive in this very strict order and very strict society. Yeah. The problem, and that would come later and more recently, this absorption of this subversion within capitalism. And that's the problem. Because while you're... On the one hand, you are being subversive, for sure. Yeah. You are contained. And... Yeah, uh, that's where a large part of the problem is today, and th- in that sense, that's why becoming a real revolutionary today is so difficult. Yeah, exactly. because to actually, and uh, not talking about oh, you need to completely rupture with society. No, otherwise you die. Yeah. <laughs> well, most people, like yeah. if you truly do build a sort of parallel society, build dual power, you're doing that. But you can't fully break from it, because otherwise this societal isolation is deadly. Yeah. Uh, that's why the stupid conservative argument of like, oh, how are you a leftist if you have a phone? Or yeah. if you have a toothbrush? Or blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. But in that regard, I think that that's some of the question. Like, sure, we can be subversive, but how... How do we make the next? Do we take the next step? Yeah, because even Jefferson Hope couldn't take the next step because, exactly. as you see, his progression of his vengeance, his tracks, still coming at his the, path. <laughs> yeah, his path to reaching his vengeance. It's really all dictated by capitalism because mm-hmm. he just takes uh, uh, he the only sole motive why he takes twenty years for the vengeance. Is because he doesn't have the money to travel. Yeah. <laughs> While the Mormons, which are in a in a, a racist and polygamist, yeah, uh, sorry, polygamist society, and have lots of money, it's really easier for for them. And even then, they they lose. Mm-hmm. So it's really, as you said, the conservative taunt of "Oh, you are a communist, but you have an iPhone." It's it's really like the same thing as the the kid who has the ball and if <laughs> if if he loses he goes away with the ball and no one plays anymore because basically we live in a world where conservative people have written the laws and the ways of living so as Frank said if you try if you isolate yourself from these rules you die so <laughs> it's really like. Uh, conservative people love these these kinds of towns mm-hmm. because they are in the top. Exactly, they're the ones that hold all the cards. Yeah, if exactly. You will. And in that regard, when you think about, oh, especially what we were talking about, he couldn't take the next step. There's also the matter of that he was doing it all alone. Yeah, he wasn't acting in community. In that sense, the community was against him. Yeah, and his sole actions as an individual were the difficult thing to take to the next level, if you will. So, yeah, that's a very interesting thing to consider, like, how, in what sense he is subversive, and how far does he go in his subversion? 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know what else to say but regarding that, but I think it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think that, uh, as I, I said earlier, and uh, you even uh, talked about what I said, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to correct myself here. I said that he was a, a revolutionary in the eyes of the of the oh, conservative yeah. people because mm-hmm. uh, that's that's the that's the typical agenda of trying to rotulate anyone that gives any chills to the to the agenda to name these people as a threat. Mm-hmm. So you you have I don't know how many examples in history about people who began. Uh, loved by the right wing and after they they arise to power they were named as leftists as revolutionaries uh, in brazil we have the big example of getulio vargas which he was a, a right wing populist but when he uh, rose to power he did a lot of of conciliatory uh, positions yeah conciliatory positions he flirted with fascism, but at the same time, he changed the workers' law here in Brazil. And it's really hybrid because at the same time that it, it is a positive change for the people, at the same time, these changes just... At that time, it, it uh, appeared to be good, but at the same time, it's, it's just like... It's just new laws of the typical capitalist yeah, agenda it, of owning the workers yeah exactly it's a new it's another type of control of the workers under the state yeah exactly especially yeah. and uh, he's I, I don't want to go too much off on him but he was his position of conciliation in that sense because he at, at the end of the day he was a statesman yeah he was a man of power a man yeah. of the state yeah and he's equilibrium of these various forces on the left and on the right, which deeply, deeply angered those on the right yeah. uh, to the point of deposing him and on his second term leading to his eventual suicide yeah. with the... And that is... It's always a good excuse to say the phrase. On his suicide letter, the, the final phrase of the letter is I exit life to enter history. Yeah, yeah. It's... That is a classic phrase. Yeah. But regardless... It's interesting to think about how, while he was, he was first in power with certain right-wing interests, liberal interests at the time, and he became more conservative on one aspect, or more liberal, or more progressive in others. Yeah. He, he was furiously, furiously hated by the right. Yeah. Because of his positions to the left, regardless of his conciliation, yeah. further and even more to the right. So it's that's very interesting to think about how much the right demonizes those that took take certain actions. Yeah. Take today, that's a huge example. Like everywhere, when you take AOC, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, where she she's d- definitely on a more like a democratic socialist position. Yeah. And she's not that stupidly far uh, left as we maybe want, but she is this absolute villain, this destroyer of order. <laughs> like, take Obama, for example. Yeah. He's not that far. He's much more of a liberal in a yeah. <laughs> negative sense. Yeah. <laughs> but he's this evil. He's this great evil for the right wing. He's this problem, this yeah. threat. He's going to row in everything. That, especially the 
his first electoral victory. There was this general fear, no, the world's gonna end, it's gonna destroy <laughs> everything. Yeah. A good example. There's this I'm not sure how what adjective to choose, but the Magnificast did an episode on him. Uh, John McNaughton. You I'm sure you have seen some of his paintings. One is uh you know the that famous Washington crossing the Delaware painting? Mm, with George know. Washington on the boat crossing the river ah, yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you've seen the one where it's Trump like crossing the swamp no <laughs> it's like it's the same idea yeah yeah it, it, there's a high technical quality there but it's yeah. Trump and his team like and there's the White House in the background traversing the swamp and all that. <laughs> and there's one which is kind of indescribable and you have to Google it called Obama Nation. And there's so much going on and it is so stupid and ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It is like it, it's the culmination of these right wing fears, these conservative yeah. neuroses and yeah, paranoia. And, 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 and the, the, the most mind boggling part for me is like. You have lots of, for example, our president, Bolsonaro, has said that Nazism is left-wing. Yeah. And and it's the third time that the the that Germany needs to release an official note on this saying <laughs> that the Nazism was right-wing and fascism is right-wing uh, while communism is left-wing. And for me, the, the most impressive part is... Neo-Nazists don't call themselves leftists. Yeah, that, that's the that's the most <laughs> like I, I don't I don't mean to agree with neo-Nazis, but neo-Nazis they they love Hitler and they research the the Hitler history and they call themselves right. <laughs> so when you have a president that goes to to Israel and makes remarks about Nazis be, being left-winged, you you like. Like uh, <laughs> there are no words. There yeah, are no yeah. Words. For for our for our our listeners, you are you are really well in other countries because you are being ruled by a bunch of jackasses and a bunch of really illiterate racist people here. Yeah, it's horrendous. Like, it's, yeah, it's, uh, there's really no good way. There's no. It's not no yeah, good. They, they basically they basically here in Brazil they created a new right which doesn't. <laughs> it's like the it's a flat earther right. Yeah, it's the, the, the post truth right. Is the uh, is the proto truth right? Yeah, we, because they have an agenda, but they don't. They don't. They are dismembered f from the actual radical right. Mm -hmm. So you have a new kind of of monstrous creation which which says that they are right winged. But at the same time, they have ideas like saying Hitler is a leftist. So <laughs> it, it, it's endless because it's conspiratory potential. It's endless. We see older people, we see literate people who actually believe these things. Yeah. And you have these uh, intellectual gurus of the regime. Yeah. You have intellectual uh, worms like Olavo de Carvalho. Yeah, he can go to hell. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and you have equivalents elsewhere. You know Jordan B. Peterson, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, he can go to ben hell Shapiro too. Ben Shapiro as oh, well. That yeah, fucking, uh. yeah, yeah. So th that was a f that's a fun tangent. We went through interesting, yeah. irrelevant though. <laughs> but it, it, it's very illustrative of how these. The, the the delusions of the right wing that we wish were true at times like 
oh, cultural Marxism is taking over the world. <laughs> we wish, we wish. <laughs> like, never mind that being like, well, a Nazi conspiracy theory, an anti-Semitic Nazi conspiracy theory about cultural Bolshevism yeah. that turned into cultural Marxism, but carries the same idea. So when yeah. you say that, you're basically following that line. Yeah. So worth noting always. Yeah. Well and said. yeah, it's just, it, it, it's astonishing. Like in that sense, they, they, they really do see revolutionaries everywhere. Yeah. Even when at times it's just some subversion, at times light or at times not. Yeah. But yeah. Well, yeah. Anything else you want to say? No. I I know. I I, I want to make one final point. Sorry, it's not going to end on that much yeah. of a high note, yeah. <laughs> but it's relevant to mention. So as we mentioned before, Watson was a former officer of the British Army in India, occupied British yeah. India. So there's the the matter of imperialism, right? And it's a brief point, but I think it's important to make. Old books like these, especially Conan Doyle and before. Like uh, Jane Austen, Kipling is, is a pretty big example of that. Imperialism is part of the cultural atmosphere of London and of the United Kingdom. And in that regard, it's always something to consider when you're doing any type of criticism or analysis. And of course, you can't really judge them as we would today. Like you, you do make criticism and that leads us to interesting new conclusions. Yeah. But it's just worth considering that imperialism is... a factor here it's a factor in conan doyle and it's yeah. a factor in sherlock holmes yeah whenever there are these references to india and on for example which i was reading the i don't know the name in english the sign of the four something mm, like that I don't know it's one of the subsequent novels of conan doyle on sherlock holmes and it portrays this sort of exotic distant strange tradition from india and elsewhere in that in, in the orient yeah, it's, 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 it's the sign of four yeah that's the sign of four part. yeah and it, it relates greatly to edward said's work on it on both orientalism and culture and imperialism yeah when he's i only read the latter not the former but it's very much about analyzing these literary works and he doesn't handle uh, conan doyle if i recall correctly but it's definitely something that we need to think about when yeah. reading these works that imperialism is a factor here yeah exactly and while that may not be on one story or another or even the majority they may not be that present or that noticeable but they're still there, and there are still things that we need to consider. I remember at the time when there were those various, uh, oh, unpopular literary theory takes, or unpopular history takes, or whatever. And I said one, uh, although I'm not a man of literary theory, mine on that was, you can't, and I think, I'll die on that hill. <laughs> you can't analyze literature, especially British literature, from this time of the British Empire, without considering imperialism yeah you need to because it's a yeah. fundamental element yeah. yeah and although we here aren't giving it the treatment it deserves because that wasn't really our focus yeah uh, we were going off on other aspects and tangents it's definitely something to talk about and something to consider like yeah. in what way does the imperial vision of india by conan doyle influence the perspective on his books that that people, that place, and that conflict is treated. Yeah, because uh, I will just do a short remark about exactly that, because as as well as Dr. Watson and Sherlock Holmes have a big distance from the primes, the dirty work is, is done by Arabs in this book. 
Mm-hmm. So you have this aspect of Sherlock Holmes. He kind kind of pays this that group of Arabs to uh, circulate in in cabs to find the the criminal to mm-hmm. find Jefferson Hope. And yes, exactly. It's a historicity murder to to don't take in in mind that colonialism is a gigantic factor, and we as well in Brazil. In my case, uh, reading lots of Brazilian literature, my perspective on literature, because I have read a lot more literature works from Brazilian authors, when you start to read something like Conan Doyle, it's really shocking because it's yeah. really racist, it's really colonialist, and it's something that we see just maybe in the early uh, Romantic period in Brazil where we have like José de Alencar, while we have someone like Machado de Assis, which which we already did a whole episode about. He was a black man, he was a genius, and it's really shocking because you can see that even even on a a good book like this, and I think that's even the the most important thing to to think about that we can't have uh, just because it's a famous work and it's canon we can't take it as as perfect and we uh, uh, above all we can't erase the the mistakes of of those authors because mm-hmm. we have people from basically if you pick up any japanese literature indian literature from those times you have the complete opposite because it's the story of the one who's been dominated. Exactly. So as you said, it's a it's a massive ideological murder to read those kinds of things without regards of what was happening at this time in exactly. in, in England and in the occupied uh, countries. Exactly. Yeah, I think this is a, a perfect place that we can. And the discussion for today. Yeah, I think it's a slightly longer episode. It's yeah. not that much, yeah. but uh, it's have is sorry for a delay and yeah. it's a little treat a, a much a quite broad conversation. I think we we went various different and interesting paths. Yeah, and I think the episode and the discussion gained a lot from. It. Mm-hmm. Any last remarks? No, no. Then uh, thank you very much. For Thank listening to much. another episode of The Left Page, yeah. please follow us on Twitter, check out our Patreon, we're going to publish some stuff. No, by now you, you should there should be something there for our first couple of patrons. Thank you very much for your support. Yeah. We we ask for support pretty much to to improve the show. Like yeah. Our first and main goal is to sustain the show yeah. so we can pay for the hosting expense. Yeah, exactly. Which isn't much, but, you know, it's, it's something that's important. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's why you asked that. So, please check it out at patreon.com forward slash the left page. And on Twitter, we are at tw- on Twitter at, at left page pod. So, please check us out there. We have some things in the works. Our next couple of episodes should be quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, we also have some collaborations. We'll be on a couple of podcasts some point in the future. So keep an eye out for that. We'll let you know when that happens. And I think that's it. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, thank you very much. Till the next one.